0: Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We will also be joined later by Arizona coach Jay Johnson, who is going to talk to us a little bit about the Wildcats, a little bit about recruiting, a little bit about the draft, a little bit of everything, I guess, in general. So very excited to have Jay Johnson uh, returning to the show. Uh, first time since I believe it was two thousand eighteen. Uh, so we're, we've got we've got Jay back here today, and we will get to him um, in a couple minutes. But we have a fair amount of news to to cover here on the podcast today, uh, Joe. It's actually been somewhat of an eventful week in in college sports and in college baseball. Uh, I guess over the, over the last seven days, we're, we're right here at the start of the week. But if you, if you combine the end of last week and the start of this week, it's, uh, things have been happening. But before we dive into all of that, just uh, how, are, uh, how are you doing in this uh, as, as we enter what was supposed to be conference tournament week?
1: I'm a little more sunburned than I was before. Uh, I do a pretty good job of sunblock, but I forgot my years. Um, and that's really a tough place to get sunburned because then your head feels hot you know, for, for as long as you have that sunburn. And so I've been struggling with that a little bit. I got some outside time this weekend. It was the first real, we've had a beautiful spring here, uh, where we're at in my estimation anyway, having been in the Midwest and and Teddy, I'm sure you, you understand this. So often in the Midwest, you go straight from winter to summer, the last snow gets off the ground melts away. And then they're
0: doing that this year.
1: Yeah, you get that last, that last snow, which is always annoying and, and makes you angry. And then it melts. And then like a week later, it feels like it's 90 degrees with you know 90% humidity, what have you. So springtime was not a great time necessarily in the Midwest. This has been beautiful here, though. This weekend, though, was the first summer-ish weekend, I feel like. It was like 90 degrees on Saturday, mid-80s on Sunday, a lot of sunshine. So I got some outside time all at a safe social distance. But, uh, you know, me and my fiance went and spent some time outside, did a good job with the sunblock, uh, did not get the the ears, though. This was the first real long exposure. I've, you know, I've been doing, you know, we've been going outside to do walks and uh, exercise and things like that. But this is the first time we spent a day outside and uh, got a little got a little toasty on my ears. But but you're right about it being kind of a busy last few days. It's felt like that. In college baseball specifically, and it's been unfortunately just for a lot of the wrong reasons. Obviously, some of this stuff felt inevitable, but it's felt just more busy in general in, in sports as, as things are starting to kind of ramp up. And it feels like we're just gonna have more news as time goes goes on and on and on because we're gonna have more information on campuses opening up and, and what that's gonna look like. And that dovetails into football in the fall and basketball in the the, the late fall and winter. And all of that kind of feeds into what the baseball season is going to look like. So it feels like this is kind of only the beginning of hopefully more positive news as as we move forward. So I think this is maybe a phrase we've been using a lot, a new normal. I think this is a new normal, at least for the time being, in terms of some of this news coming across. And, and of course, don't look now, but we're just a few weeks away from, from the draft, which is going to be our biggest college baseball-related news item uh, of the summer anyway.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So... We've uh, we've kind of talked around the news a little bit. Let's uh, let's touch on uh, on the news. Uh, like, get give the the big headlines here. The biggest headlines I think right now are that Bowling Green cut baseball on what was that last Thursday. They announced that they were eliminating the baseball team. Chicago State, um, as we record this, it is Monday afternoon. Chicago State's Board of Trustees are meeting right now, and it is my understanding that during this meeting, they will vote on cutting baseball, possibly other sports, um, but the expectation is that Chicago State will make an announcement this week about its own cuts, and you know so that they would potentially be joining then Bowling Green in in cutting baseball, um, those are the, the first t- examples of sports being cut due to the fallout from the coronavirus pandemic and the ensuing financial uh, repercussions that we have seen. We do not necessarily expect those to be the last. Um, there are various rumblings from around the country, nothing hard and fast. Uh, but there is an expectation that there will potentially be further, further cuts of, of programs. So that's been happening. We have also had several conferences announce that they are altering their structure for next season, mostly in regards to tournaments or weekend series. The Mac kind of kicked that all off last week when they, Announced that they were canceling the baseball tournament and the other and postseason tournaments for seven other sports um, for the next four years. Most of the conferences we've seen have, you know, only said for 2021, the MAC went a step further and said that for the next four years there won't be a conference tournament. Other conferences are scaling back to maybe only four teams in the tournament. Uh, A lot of conferences, and this includes the MAC, are saying instead of playing three games over three days for a weekend conference series you're going to play three games over two days uh, in an effort to save on on travel costs uh, you know we've seen some conferences regionalized schedules uh etc as far as all of that goes and then the ncaa um i believe this was on wednesday as well announced that they were extending the recruiting dead period uh, that they declared the day after canceling the college world series and all other winter and spring sports championships that that dead period has been in effect since march 13 and they are now extending it through june 30 and they are committed to reviewing the uh the dead period dates within the next couple weeks and i believe it's May 27 is the next time they're going to meet on that. And they said in the initial release that it could be extended again at that time, uh, likely for another month if they were to extend it. Uh, So obviously that is taking a large amount of contact and evaluation time away from baseball uh, coaches and recruits. Um, So we can get into a little bit of how, how that is affecting everyone. Uh, also kind of buried in that meeting when the NCAA announced that recruiting stuff, they now have a process for, on a case-by-case basis, waiving certain requirements that athletic departments have to be Division One, like sports sponsorship. Um, and I believe the fact that the NCAA announced that on Wednesday and Bowling Green the very next day cut baseball, I think those two things are linked. I haven't seen anyone at Bowling Green actually like say that that is linked but I I kind of think that the reason why we hadn't seen any more sports cut um than we had prior to that is um is, is due to the uh you know the, the the NCAA they they were waiting for guidance and they got it and now we're now we're seeing some some sports slash and it hasn't just been baseball Akron also announced uh, They're cutting three sports, men's cross country, men's golf, and women's tennis were all all slashed at Akron. But the Zips baseball team, which just came back this year um, after a brief hiatus when they were cut um, a few years ago, uh, they were not cut again this time. So the Zips baseball team is, is spared this time around. But it, you certainly feel for all of the athletes and all of these sports that are, are seeing their, their – um, their universities cut their their sport it's not in a a pleasant thing to go through for for them or their families as they have to figure out uh what they want to do both athletically and academically now um very difficult decisions to be made in terms of whether they're transferring or whether they're staying at the school um how much were they at the school to play the sport or how much did they want to be there and can they find a new spot etc um not a great situation all the way around. So that's the news that we want to get into. Um, first, though, Joe, I, I think we just want to get to Jay. Uh, we're going to talk about some of that with, with Jay. Obviously, not the the sports getting cut. That's not a not a situation Arizona has to worry about. But Jay is one of the head coaches who is most active on the recruiting trail. So anything that happens recruiting wise, you know, it, it it's affecting you know, every coach that, that can go out, but certainly it's affecting, um, you know, Jay Johnson is feeling those effects because he is one of the the head coaches who is out the most during the summer. And, you know, he's now, uh, you know, losing days to, to go out and, and see those recruits. So we're going to get into that a little bit with him um, as well as talking about the the cats and, and the draft. So, Let's move on to, uh, to hear from Arizona coach Jay Johnson. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are very happy to be joined by Arizona coach Jay Johnson. Uh, coach, it's, uh, it's been an interesting spring for everyone. Uh, what, uh, what have you been up to over the last couple months since the season was uh, abruptly ended?
2: You know, it honestly, other than players being around and getting to compete, a lot of the elements of the job have stayed the same, making sure our players did a good job academically, finished the semester strong, which they did, which I'm proud of that. And then, you know, working on development plans going forward in the context of what our players are able to do strength and conditioning wise, baseball wise, and those types of things. So we can remain productive, but uh, we're definitely missing, uh, those intense weekend series in the Pac-12 and and miss uh, having an opportunity at the uh, NCAA tournament. What would have been coming up next week?
0: Yeah, it's kind of crazy that it's uh, it's that time of year um, already. It, you know, sometimes it feels like it's the end of May, and sometimes it feels like who knows what time of the year it is. But you guys were off to a ten and five start going into Pac-12 play uh, when when the season ended. What did you learn about the team? In the few weeks that you were able to play and, and uh throughout the fall as well?
2: Yeah, I, I really liked where we were at. We had played a good schedule. I mean, it was only a 15 game sample, but I believe like our strength of schedule when we finished was right around 30, 29, 25, something like that. And um, you know, the first thing that, that really stuck out was our, our pitching was much improved in terms of the strike throwers, obviously adding coach Yeski was uh, a big time deal for our program relative to the development of our pitchers. And we'd really liked the the class of recruits that we brought in as pitchers as far as strike throwers. And they just had uh, done a really good job controlling the game, keeping us in games and offensively. I think we were very good again. I mean, it didn't seem like we were quite rolling yet and we were still averaging close to eight runs per game. So, I really liked the direction we were headed. I liked the makeup of the team. you know we had never lost two in a row, and so the the bounce back factor was was good for our team and and hopefully we'll have a lot of those pieces in place moving forward into twenty twenty one
1: you mentioned Nate yetsky coming in as the pitching coach, and obviously he's you know universally regarded as, as one of the best in the in the game at that piece of it. How does his role and what he's trying to do kind of dovetail with what Dave Lawn is doing you know as as a defensive coach how do those two roles kind of work together to make run prevention uh, more effective for you guys?
2: That's a great question I mean first off both of them are Hall of Fame human beings just in terms of their character their work ethic and what they bring to the table and being positive examples uh, to our players on a on a daily basis and you know when I'm hiring any kind of assistant coach that's the kind of impact I'm looking for. We felt like after the 2019 season, or I felt like we needed a little bit of a reboot on the uh, pitching side of things, which, uh, you know, we shot for the moon with Kocheski and got it because he's so highly regarded. I liked the template he had in place for those guys relative to uh, really just started with strike zone pressure. We just seemed to be in a lot more good counts to where we could throw what we wanted to. I think we were Ranked very highly nationally in strikeouts per game. And I, I credit Coach Jeske and our incoming pitchers. Like I said, a lot of strike throwers, a lot of guys that can soften up hitters with good change ups, make the ball go down with breaking balls. And uh, they did a, a really effective job. And then what you have with Coach Lawn was just simply a, a coach that has been doing this for a very long time. He's been to Omaha with three different programs and asked him to step into. A different role in the program you know helping the defense primarily the catchers and the first baseman and looking at that I think and you'll see it in the in the draft with Austin Wells he had significant defensive improvement this year and Coach Lawn really took that upon himself and did a terrific job with that he did a, a terrific job with along with Mark Wanaka our volunteer assistant of positioning the defense and you know offensively, we're always confident in what we're going to be able to do. So, like I said, all, all of the staff members uh, were were we were functioning at a high level and and I really liked where our team was headed in terms of getting better as the season went along.
0: You mentioned Austin Wells, who looks like he's destined to become a first round pick next month in the draft. what What makes Austin special to you and and what are you gonna what kind of stands out from his time uh, with with you coaching and I guess even recruiting him?
2: Yeah, for sure. I think uh, the first thing that comes to mind is I know how some of these college basketball coaches feel now where you only get a great player like that for one season. Um, and honestly, one of the, the the saddest parts or the toughest ones to get over when the season was ended was, hey, he's probably not going to be playing for us anymore. And that just speaks to how highly we think of him as a player and as a person. The person side of it, he was very mature for his age did a tremendous job of being consistent and preparing and doing the things that he needed to do to help him be successful from a player standpoint i really believe he's one of the best hitters i've ever coached i think his kind of calling card at least for me is is his adjustability and what i mean by that is if he was down or off he wasn't off for very long it would just take a quick reboot session uh, to get him back on track with the things that he needed to do. And he could immediately take those adjustments into the game and be successful. I think, you know, I mentioned it as a team, we were scoring about 7.5 or eight a game with not feeling like we were getting going. I think he was hitting like 378 and felt like his better days were ahead of him in terms of this season as well. And I mentioned improvement defensively, but it's just, it's a total package player in, in terms of character work ethic discipline really good teammate cared about winning and and obviously a great great player.
1: So the loss of Austin Wells would be would be a big one no doubt but you know everyone else should have the opportunity at least to come back. So what excites you most knowing that you know you're going to have a large part of this group back plus the guys you have coming in. What has you most excited about 2021?
2: I think the maturity part of it, you know, the one thing that a lot of coaches probably talk about with you guys is, is we have lost some significant development time and that's everybody at any level of baseball right now of not really getting to play a, a conference schedule this year. And you just can't put a price on development and, you know, a weekend series against, you know, UCLA or USC or Washington or, you know, anybody that we would play in the PAC 12 or, An opportunity to play in the NCAA tournament. Uh, With that being said, you know, I think we have a good pulse on what we have within our program with those other players. And we have some good players at, at some premium position, positions that will be athletic. We'll have a number of returning players that have gotten significant at bats because we played a lot of them as freshmen in the 2019 season. So I think you're looking at a group that Uh, We'll have been through some things, even though the season got cut short, that we'll play with a high level of maturity. I already mentioned uh, the improvements that we felt like we made as a pitching staff in terms of throwing strikes, eliminating free bases, striking guys out, which was a big deal. And then we're obviously really excited about our recruiting class, and that's obviously kind of pending the draft. But, you know, they're high-character guys from really good families that we really believe – we have a good chance of getting to Arizona and completing or putting together a a very complete team next year, which we're excited about.
0: You mentioned the recruiting there and, and we did want to dive into that a little bit as well. One of the things that stands out about you as a head coach is that you're one of the more active head coaches on the recruiting trail. And you know, this has been a strange season or spring for recruiting and the NCAA last week extended the dead period that they enacted immediately following the cancellation of the season to extend through uh, June 30. So when you look at, at having lost a spring contact period and now the start of the summer contact period kind of going away uh, just what does that affect what, what you guys are are trying to do in recruiting and and how your, I, I guess it frees up a lot of time in your summer potentially.
2: Yeah, that's all to be determined, obviously. (laughs) First thing I would say is like, you know, as a university, as a baseball program, me personally, like we're totally on board with public health and whatever it takes for everybody to be safe and healthy and do whatever we can to get back to normal. And if that means some short-term pain in the recruiting process and, and kind of deviating from what we normally do, like that's fine. I think what it's done for us is, allowed us to put a lot of of focus on our our current team relative to next year and what that's going to look like. We've done a lot of, you know, what I would call uh, informational meetings with our 2020 class relative to the draft, how things change, uh, have changed with all of this and that's been very productive and and of good use of our time. And for now it's, it's actually been okay to be in a little bit of a, a holding pattern until we see how, this is going to affect it. You know, shorter drafts, probably more players coming into every program across the country, uh, potential to have a little bit older team, uh, which I'm excited about. And, you know, really the foundation for us for the next few years going forward will be, you know, this 2020 class of, of guys that we feel we're very high on, not only their ability, but their character and feel like they'll blend well with our returners and Get a good foundation and and kind of hit the pause button honestly on on some of the future classes because we want to evaluate those guys appropriately and make sure we end up with the best players for us
1: what do you think is lost with with kids not having the chance to to get to campus in the springtime both for you and and for those players to, to not get the opportunity to see the in-game atmosphere and get a feel for that
2: I think it depends school to school I think it for us that's something we definitely want them to see like we have such a good following here in Tucson and in the state of Arizona an average 3,000 fans per game It's a great home field advantage and something that we definitely relied on and something that was always really positive for us uh, you know but that's just it's kind of one of those parts of this thing where you're having to adapt improvise and overcome and trying to, you know, whatever it is, FaceTime with recruits, build connections in any any way that you possibly can. And basically say, hey, we'll be there when we have the opportunity to be there. Like when we have an opportunity to go back out and evaluate players and get back on the road, our staff will definitely be doing that.
1: I have to imagine with, with, you, not, with, with you and your staff not being on the road, you're, you're consuming a lot more video. What do you think translates well in the process of being able to see in video? And what are some things that you know you just have to lean more on in-person looks to be able to discern when it comes to evaluating players.
2: That's a really good question. I think uh, I've noticed definitely an uptick in in players sending across video of the work that they're putting in because that's our only way to see them right now and, and off of that uh, some really noticeable tools stand out And like its simplest form. I saw a video the other day of Bryce Harper swinging the bat and obviously you can see his incredible strength and balance and bat speed and and those types of things when we're looking at young players I think it will tip us off to somebody we need to follow up on and when I say follow up on you know maybe research how well they've done throughout their high school career what does their high school coach say about them what does maybe their travel team coach say about them maybe opposing coaches those types of things and then what we do with those evaluations is take them into hopefully whatever it is the summer or the fall, and go see players play. And uh, I will always trust our own eyes and, and seeing players within competition before we really make a, a decision going forward on them.
0: Is is that trust in your own eyes part of the reason why you have continued to be as active in recruiting as you have been since you've moved from you know being an assistant coach, being a recruiting coordinator, to being a head coach?
2: You know, I don't think it's that. I think because we all – You know can see the really really talented player that can help us win and all of us probably have a story where we took a a less known guy and they were successful but we all you know make mistakes too that goes for every scouting director every college recruiting coordinator head coach whatever i think for me i've just found i'm a lot better coach when i have a lot better players to coach and so um our our knowledge is only as good as is the aptitude of the player uh, the makeup of the player. And so for me, it's just something I've always felt more comfortable with if we get an opportunity to to see them or if I get an opportunity to see them have a little better idea of what we're dealing with and then using your experience with past players that have been successful, you know, and for me particularly on the position player side of it and saying, hey, maybe I see a little of this particular player in this recruit. And then if the makeup matches up with it, it's something you feel like you can move forward with.
0: One thing you won't have to worry about next year, it certainly seems like, is, the, uh, is Spencer Torkelson over at, at Arizona State. Uh, just from having played against him for the last couple of years, you know that's a guy that looks like he could be the first overall pick in the draft. What, what from your view, did you see from Spencer that made him so good in college and, and makes him such a good prospect?
2: Well, you definitely hit it on the best thing of this uh, coronavirus quarantine for me is we don't have to pitch to him anymore. Uh, man, he is a great, great hitter. Uh, one of the better ones I've ever seen, maybe, you know, one of the best I've ever seen in terms of a a balance between just pure hitting ability, plate discipline and and special power. And, um, yeah, he had an unbelievable couple years there and and career there. And, uh, you know, I, am not letting whoever has the first pick, I'm thinking Detroit, um, Man, if if am the Tigers, that's that's who I'm grabbing and we got to see got to see that, you know, firsthand for eight or nine games over the last couple of years. And he's one of those guys that's as good as advertised.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I uh I can imagine that the entire Pac twelve is breathing a sigh of relief once he uh once he puts ink to, to his contract this summer.
2: Yeah, for sure. No doubt about that.
0: Well, what uh, What's keeping you busy in quarantine these days since uh, since you can't do as much baseball as, as you're used to? I imagine this is the first this spring for you in a long time. What, what has occupied you for the last couple months?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, I have a really good home office set up here, and a lot of the mornings and the days are very similar other than, you know, we're not face-to-face as coaches, but three times a week we'll get on a, a Zoom call together and over tasks and talk about things we want to get better and improve at recruiting and how our players are doing academically and and workout plans development plans those types of things so that's been similar uh maybe working a little head on some administrative things and, and that's been important given the set of circumstances of you know that we have with the draft and players receiving extra eligibility those types of things Trying to take some time to just develop personally and get better relative to uh, coaching and diving into a little more of the baseball technology stuff that has become more prevalent over the last couple years and then trying to stay in shape it's amazing how much better shape you can be when you don't have a four hour practice in the middle of the day and uh, can can get some get some work in so honestly, I mean it a lot hasn't changed other than certainly I mean desperately missing the competition and missing seeing and, and working with the players on a daily basis.
0: Are you like doing lawn work? I guess it's Arizona, so there's probably not as much lawn work. Is it is it lawn work? Are you doing like stuff around the house or uh is, is all of that stuff still just like kind of secondary.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's not a lot of grass in Arizona. We live <laughs> on a well and I don't even know how this works. So we actually have an unbelievable lawn that I do not take care of. So I'm taking no credit for that. Um, but yeah, we, we, uh, it's, it really hasn't changed a whole lot. Like I said, other than just the no competition, which is, is in coaching one of my favorite parts about it. And then, and then the opportunity to be face to face and and develop in the players. But yeah, I'm, uh, I will never, uh, put myself out there as a a superstar handyman or home improvement person.
0: Well, hopefully we can get back to the competition sooner than later. Uh, hopefully sooner than later, I suppose, and and we can get uh, we can get you back out on the recruiting trail and everything that we're used to again in uh, in the college baseball world.
2: Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think what are we in two months now? I think uh, everybody's kind of itching to to get back and and get back to what you would call regular routine and. And get the players back around and all that type of stuff, and and hopefully you know we're getting good leadership and in, in terms of uh, getting back to back to campuses and those types of things. I'm really pleased with what I've seen out of University of Arizona. Our President, Dr. Robbins, way at the forefront of the testing uh, part of this thing, both uh, for the coronavirus and the antibody element of it. We have a really good reentry plan and. I'm probably the most confident coach in the country that we'll be back in school and, and getting a chance to work with our players and develop our players in the fall based on the things our university is doing right now.
0: Well, that's always outstanding to hear. We're, we're certainly looking forward to that as well. And we really appreciate you, uh, you taking the time to, to talk with us here on the, the baseball America college podcast.
2: Yeah. Awesome being on with you guys and uh, look forward to doing it again soon.
0: Thank you again to Arizona coach Jay Johnson for joining us here on the baseball America college podcast, uh, Joe, I love talking to Jay. I think he like, thinks about the game and everything involving the game from a very interesting standpoint. And clearly he lives it a lot. You know, I gave him ample opportunity to say what else he's doing in quarantine. And he said, well, pretty much I'm just, uh, I'm just rolling on and, and going to the office and, you know, looking at, uh, at various uh, various things like I would during the during a normal season. So, um, you know, he's uh, he's not one that's out there, you know, figuring out how to, um, you know, hoe his lawn or, uh, you know, plowing through through Netflix or anything. He's uh, he's thinking a lot about how this affects uh, his team and his players.
1: Yeah, you, you you get the idea that you know he's one of the coaches out there, and all coaches will. All coaches will say this, and, and I think the vast majority of them, you know, believe in or are taking strides towards that. We, we talked to Pete Hughes about this a little bit a few weeks ago, but he's definitely seems like one of the coaches who's decided and kind of, you know, put a, put a stake in the ground to say, I'm going to do everything in my power to make the best of this situation and, and try to just keep grinding and, and, and get through it. And and be as productive as as I can be now. Of course, saying that and doing it are, are different things, and there are just limitations on what coaches can and can't do these days. But he's certainly a coach that has just kind of decided he's going to will himself to to making the best of the of the situation. So that that definitely came through in um, in that interview. And you know, some of the stuff we we got into with the recruiting piece was interesting. And and one thing we we didn't ask, but that you and I have talked about independent of that too, is, you know, he talked about some of the, the, the positives of the situation and, and, you know, getting sent a lot more video, they're watching a lot of video. And, you know, we talked a little bit about how this might affect recruiting moving forward. And maybe it doesn't fundamentally change the way recruiting is done at the college level, but perhaps there are little tweaks that, you know, at first you, you would have never considered, you know, tweaks to your recruiting strategy in a normal situation, but because this is what it is, and the circumstances are what they are, that maybe moving, you find that actually this is a more efficient way to do something and you move forward with that. So I'll be interested, you know, that's maybe a question for when we get into, you know, 2021, 22, 23, and kind of look back with the benefit of hindsight, that might be something to interesting to talk about, but it's where my mind went when he was talking about how things have, have, have changed a little bit, but you know certainly a certainly a coach that really has his his finger on the pulse of 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 what he feels like you know his program needs to be doing in recruiting to to stay continue playing at a high level.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I dove into recruiting pretty significantly um, over the last week. Um, you know, I the the vote extending the dead period was was anticipated. And so I spent a lot of time talking to people who are recruiters like what does this mean who does this impact the most and kind of the consensus around college baseball was that it's going to impact you know the class of 2021 those players in that class that high school class who are not committed there are a lot of players who are committed if you go and you pull up you know any top 2021 prospect list you can look at ours in high school, I think that runs 50 deep. Or if you want to go look at one of the recruiting sites where the they have a lot more high school players listed, um, you know, I looked at Perfect Games. You, I believe it was like 20 players in the top 300 were not listed as being committed on Perfect Game. Once you get outside the top 300, though, it's a different story, and the percentage of players who are committed, um, you know, it goes down real quickly, and so, all of those kids, for them it's a you know it's a it's a real kind of quandary they're in because if you are a kid who's sitting on offers but was kind of holding out trying to see like exactly who was in on you and could you get a better deal somewhere, or could you get you know maybe you're holding out for a specific school uh, who hadn't made an offer yet, like now you you know are they going to be able to see you, and if they can't see you again are they going to want to make an offer? And, and the answer is probably not. Um, but like, how long can you wait for them to see you? Because eventually this dead period is going to end and then they can get out again. Uh, but you also have to consider the fact that like you have lost player development time. And so the late bloomers that are, you know, we typically see in, in a rising senior make a jump going into in that summer entering their senior year, are they going to still make that same jump without the spring without playing regular baseball in the spring? Uh, And then what happens to their recruiting? um, You know, if they can't make that jump, if their fastball, isn't making that advancement or, you know, if they're, you know, not driving the ball over the the fence or if they haven't improved their zone awareness or whatever it is, what's happening to them. And so if you're not committed somewhere right now, like that's kind of a tenuous spot to be in. And then beyond that, it's kind of a double whammy here because there's a lot that's been talked about that Joe and I have talked about with the seniors getting the opportunity to come back. That they you know, got that opportunity so late in their senior year that a lot of them, if they were going to graduate, had jobs lined up or had grad school plans or, or just, you know, certain they were going into pro ball. And so the, we, we aren't really sure exactly how many seniors are going to take that take advantage of that extra year next season. Well, the juniors, this year's juniors, have a full year to get ready for that. That means that they have a full year to financially and academically plan for taking five years in college if they want. And that means presumably that more of them are going to be able to do it than you're going to see this year. And then, you know, this year, the NCAA said, well, seniors don't count towards roster caps. But they haven't said anything about those rules being extended into the 2022 season. And so if those rules aren't extended, and you expect more of your now juniors to take that that fifth year, well, now maybe you don't need as many incoming recruits. And so now, even if you are still trying to fill your class, maybe you don't send out extra offers because you don't know if those spots are going to be open. So it's really getting the the 2021 kids who aren't committed already, both coming and going. And, um, you know, it's an unfortunate spot to be in. One recruiting coordinator I talked to said, you know, his best advice for those players is to just be as patient as you can be. And that, you know, in the fall, hopefully the recruiters are able to go out and see them play or later this summer, they're able to go out and see them play and, and just be as patient as you can be to wait for the those recruiting coordinators to, to go out and find you as a player. Uh, but it, you know, it's one thing to say that it's another thing to actually be the kid that wants to be excited about where he's going to college that just wants to make plans. And you're not being able to do that necessarily, but at the same time, you don't want to cheat the process. You don't want to cheat yourself and you want to be able to understand everything you can about the program you're committing to be able to see it, be able to, to walk on campus and see the facilities and meet people and, and do all the things kids normally do when they're trying to pick their college. Um, it's a, it's a tough situation to be in. And, um, you know, that, that is the one that's probably the biggest takeaway that I got from, you know, working on that piece, which you can read over at baseballamerica.com.
1: Yeah, it is quite one thing to, to tell the, the players to be patient. And I get that, that logic. And I think there are certainly a lot of coaches that are still looking to fill classes. They would really appreciate it if Those players would be a little bit patient with them, but from the player standpoint, and I can put myself in the shoes of, of that player. And, and I I would have a hard time doing that just because you get afraid of, and this has always been true in recruiting, but I think it's been exacerbated. Now you're just afraid of getting left out in the cold a little bit. And especially if you were a guy who had already kind of bet on yourself a little bit, you know, maybe you've had offers or you've had opportunities, but you're, you're kind of, as you said, waiting for the right one. And that you might've done everything in your power to do that. And you might have that opportunity in your mind taken away from you. And that's gotta be a tough thing. So it just, it just makes me wonder if, you know, the things that end up being important for, you know, these kids who are still looking for, for places to go is, is local recruiting might be um, just really, really important. You know, if you've got the relationships with those local high school and travel ball coaches um, you know, where, where you might be able to lead on a pipeline a little bit there or just on the coaches who are really, really good at the relationship side of the business, because talking is the one thing that you can still kind of do in, in this world. And, Um, you know if you can't get in-person looks and and meet in person and um, so those those coaches who maybe did a little more of that legwork early on the process and these kids looking maybe to find a place and that aren't just able to be patient and sit tight um, you know those players might lean more heavily on going to the places that they feel most comfortable with those coaches for the longest period of time and maybe they won't be as distracted by the the newest offer they got or maybe the biggest name program they got they you know whether it's Uh, conscious or subconscious, I think, in the world we live in in this moment, and kids probably, you know, 17, 18 year old kids probably would not be able to express this in, in this specific way. But I think we're all kind of leaning on safety right now, and what makes us comfortable, and what makes us feel comfortable when so much of the rest of the world right now is not comfortable. And you can see how for a kid, that would be the coaches they feel closest to the coaches that have the bet on them early, the coaches that they hear from most, and, and less so just the 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 biggest name that they have on their offer list or the the, the last place they saw. Cause you know, that, that's a thing that happens. I mean that was true when I was looking at 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 colleges when I was just going to college as a regular student, although my lack of real uh, rigor in that process is a story for another podcast. But when I was doing that, it was, you know, the last thing you saw is kind of what sticks out to you a little bit. And Maybe that'll be less the case here. So it really has created an interesting, uh, interesting as a, uh, as an exercise. It is not interesting because in the case that these, it sucks that these kids aren't going to get the opportunities they would have had otherwise. And these coaches are not going to get the opportunities to find the right fits, things like that. So I just mean interesting from the standpoint of a of kind of a thought exercise and, and being able to see this, this play out. Um, we'll, we'll just have to see. I mean, there, there's a lot of uncertainty here and that's the, the word of the, the word of the year so far is, is uncertainty, and, and certainly there's plenty of it around around recruiting, and will continue to be so into at least the near future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the the other thing that that goes along with that is that you know the the, the there's anytime you talk about baseball recruiting, it doesn't take a whole lot for someone to start talking about underclassmen recruiting, and so that definitely came up again when I was doing this reporting. And there's some real concern among coaches that those kids who are ninth and 10th graders are still going to commit during this time without having really had much of a chance to go through even the accelerated process that we're used to seeing from them. Um, If they can't get on campuses, you know, is that really going to hold any of them back? And if it's not, like there are a lot of coaches that are kind of significantly co- concerned about what that means that you know they would love if this dead period and eh, you know would mean that everyone just stops you know pushes pause on trying to commit um you know 2024s but the reality is it's probably not going to be like that and and now kids are you know committing very early to places that they know even less about because they haven't been able to go through you know even the more accelerated process, and so that's another thing to think about um, it's a little less of a thing you know uh, less impactful um, because of how fluid college commitments can be uh you know even a baseball where you know kids generally aren't flipping like they do in football but yeah it's still a more fluid commitment than than anything and the you know the 2021s are like legitimately going to be squeezed out if you're committing 2024 is like that's a situation that's going to play out over the next few years and it'll correct itself if it needs to get corrected i would guess but uh, that is another thing that that people in the recruiting world are are definitely keeping an eye on is our schools that typically recruit at that age are they going to go full steam ahead, or are they going to pull back, and are the kids going to pull back with them in terms of not getting left behind and um, you know not jumping at early offers so uh, another thing to look at in the in the recruiting situation I um did also want to go back to something Jay was talking about with austin wells uh and, and he mentioned feeling like some of the the college basketball coaches who only you know, get the one and done and, and, and then they're gone. And, you know, that's a, that's a real thing with Austin Wells. He played one season and then like 15 games this year, that's all he played for Arizona. And so, yeah, yes, it took place over more than a year and a half, but you know, effectively the Wildcats only had him uh, for one season cause he's a draft eligible sophomore. And you know, the 2020 season was a, uh, was as abbreviated as, as it is.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, I imagine Oregon State has to feel the same way if, if Kevin Abel gets drafted this year in that, that spot. And, and boy, the, the memories Kevin Abel provided for that program, obviously, uh, will, will live forever. And Maybe that changes that a little bit feeling around that. But yeah, certainly, Also, we were just kind of figuring out who Austin Wells was. And because Arizona was a team that was at best on the bubble last year, and really they had to hustle to get even really onto the bubble, he kind of flew under the radar, even for you and I in a lot of ways, where you know, when we were to putting together our top 25 for this year, it was we knew the name Austin Wells, but it was really kind of, you know, who is exactly Austin Wells and, and Arizona really in general. And I guess that kind of springboards into the conversation about Arizona in 2021 and the, the, the uh, optimism around that team in 2021 is that that was actually just a, a really good offense two years ago and the pitching didn't really live up. And so this year the expectation was the offense would be really good again. And, and, and Jay mentions it. I mean, they, they, they really weren't quite rolling yet. I mean, the stats are, uh, you know, still good, but they weren't, you know, exactly what we thought they could possibly be. And I thought the pitching last year, and we would have to see how they stacked up in, in the Pac-12, but the Pac-12 wasn't exactly a conference last year of, of teams that you would have viewed as offensive juggernauts. I mean, the best one that in the conference was probably Arizona and their Arizona pitchers don't have to face the Arizona hitters. And Arizona state would have obviously been a test, but you know, I think there was an opportunity for Arizona's pitching staff to, to actually do quite well there. And I thought they'd been pretty good so far in the season. And Nate is very good at, at, at putting pitching staffs together. And I think over time that will only increase because he just, he has the pitchers he has. And that's, that's kind of what he had to work with. But I thought he'd done a really nice job. Of, of getting the most out of them so far that the pitching numbers I thought were kind of surprisingly good and the rotation in particular three guys they had in the rotation and we'll have to see if they stick once they Arizona brings in another quality recruiting class I think there's gonna be a lot of competition on the mound next year so we'll see if that those guys are, are in the mix again but the guys they were using were doing a good job and so I thought there was an opportunity for the pitching to be to be good enough considering what the offense was going to be and so now 2021 looks like the year where both sides might actually be really really good and that's part of the reason we have them ranked as highly as we do in our, you know, off season top 25, we just put out last week.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a, uh, Arizona is an intriguing team. Um, you know, Joe was very bullish on them this season and, you know, they, they were going pretty good at, at times this year. And, and I would say, I would say, okay, okay. So I would say that it was a little up and down the first couple of weeks. And then it felt like they were hitting their stride in the last, what turned out to be the last week of the season. They go to Austin, they win a a midweek at Texas, and then they come home and win a series against Houston. And now, how good was Houston this year? Kind of an unknown. Uh, but that was a really nice week to give them some momentum going into Pac-12 play. They were supposed to be playing Oregon State at home. Felt like a good time to be getting Oregon State. definitely prefer to be at home against them than in Corvallis. If they win that series, really, you know, might be able to take off from there. And, you know, it, it, so it's unfortunate the rug gets pulled out from them under them at that point. But the good news is outside of Austin Wells, for the most part, this team is coming back. And, you know, that, that, that combined with a recruiting class that's probably going to end up as a borderline top 10 class, it's borderline top 10 right now. We'll see how the draft plays out. Uh, you know, that's a really nice combination to have. And, you know, there's really no reason I I would say that in what we expect to be a more open Pac-12 next year, you know, Arizona State, we figure is going to take a a step back. Um, You know, Oregon State didn't have time to really assert themselves this year and is going to lose a couple pieces. And Stanford was You know, really struggling. Cal was really struggling. Maybe USC was taking a step forward. Maybe Oregon was showing you a little something, but, you know, Washington. But outside of UCLA, I mean, the Pac 12 looks kind of open and Arizona looks very well poised to step into that void and compete at the top of the pack.
1: Yeah, I agree. It feels like a, you know, 2020, I think, in a lot of ways was going to be a year of flux in the Pac 12. And I think the teams that we felt like were most in flux, whether that was, programs in first-year coaching situations like USC, like Oregon, like Washington State, um, which, you know, Washington State was not a team really ready to compete at the top as it was. But the teams that are kind of in flux, I think, will, in 2021, there still will be some of that because ultimately these new head coaches got to see, you know, 14, 15, 16 games with their, their new programs. And, you know, you can learn some things there. And, and now they're, they're in a situation where they haven't seen their players in some time and may not see their players really until the fall at some point. So I think they really go into 2021 still feeling in a lot of ways like first year coaches and I'd be interested to talk to some first year coaches about like how that feels. So I think there still could be some flux in that way and then you add the fact that yeah, Arizona State is going to lose a lot of talent even in a five round draft and so Arizona State's probably not going to be as good next year. And so I think the Pac-12 if anything is going to be a little more in flux in 2021, just just given these circumstances. I, Arizona, to your point, is, I think, really in a good spot to compete in that conference along with
2: UCLA.
0: So not to uh, totally like derail us here, but we have breaking news. We, we don't have a sound effect for that. But um, Furman, <laughs> Furman is discontinuing baseball. Wow. So uh, we now have two programs and we'll wait for the final word from Chicago state, but expected to be three programs now on the way out. Um, to put a bow on Arizona here for a second, we'll, we'll come back to the, the program cuts here. Uh, absolutely. But to put a bow on Arizona, I'm, I'm excited for what they can be next season. I'm excited for what they can be going forward. I've been excited about Arizona's potential really since, Jay Johnson showed up there and did what he did in the first season. Um, They recruited a pretty high level. They, you know, have a lot of advantages in the PAC 12 being in, you know, the Southern half of it. Um, And that's a, a school that traditionally has, has, you know, found a way to, you know, take full advantage of that and be one of the best teams in the PAC 12. And I feel like both Arizona and Arizona state are really approaching, you know, their, their potential there's still certainly room to go until you know one of them's winning a national title I don't know that you can you know say that they've done it or until they're um you know Arizona State still has to get back to Omaha and um you know both of them could use to win a Pac-12 title before we really declare the state of Arizona is back in college baseball but they uh you know they're certainly well on their way and, and I really think that the level at which they're recruiting Relative to the rest of the pac 12, because outside of UCLA, I would say those are the two best recruiting teams in the pack right now uh, that, that that's really significant. And you know not only is Jay Johnson a really good recruiter, but Nate Yeske is, a, is an excellent recruiter as well. He was a big part of why Oregon State had as much talent as they did over the years. And so you know as long as those two guys are together in Tucson, you know that's a quite the dynamic duo um, you know for the Wildcats. All right, now uh, let's uh, let's head back to the breaking news, Joe um, Furman. That's uh, another shocking program. Uh, frankly, both Bowling Green was shocking uh, that they would cut because not because of you know. it's a Bowling Green is to be perfectly honest like a bottom half of the MAC baseball program, and so can we really be surprised that they would cut when you know conference mates Buffalo and Akron had both cut the sport within the last six or seven years akron obviously reinstated it very soon after cutting it but um it certainly fits the profile of those two that that cut the program cleveland state cut the program about 10 years ago not a MAC school but similar profile so i don't know you can be surprised from that standpoint but bowling green's athletic director bob moseberger played at Bowling green played for danny schmitz was the coach he put out of a job at Bowling Green, and was a member of the baseball committee right up until the moment that he cut baseball. Um, and by baseball committee, I mean the baseball selection committee, the NCAA's baseball committee. Um, so that's the guy that cut baseball there. And, and you know, he said after the cut in a, in a press conference uh, that he you know felt like he would betrayed his fellow baseball alumni um which i'm sure they feel as well uh, but you know that was that was a surprising one just given his connection to the sport
1: yeah it's just um i mean first off let me let me issue an apology for my uh, joking sounding breaking news Uh, noise (laughs) as you, as you announced that Furman has cut baseball. It hadn't occurred to me at the time that that might've sounded like making too much light of a, uh, of a situation that is is sad and disappointing for a lot of people uh, myself included. Um, You know, it's funny you mentioned that the Bowling Green is a surprise for all those reasons. And that, that totally makes sense. And I I agree with you, but it's one of those things where I think for a lay person who only see follows college baseball on the surface level, I think they might look at that and go, yeah, it makes sense. It's, you know, a program that really hasn't been competitive in the MAC for five or six years now. They have some history. They've got, they actually have an impressive MLB alumni list compared to uh, programs at, at that similar level. But they haven't been competitive in a while. You mentioned they're kind of a bottom half of the MAC team. That's true. Um, they're in in the MAC first of all. So those are that's a small conference working on tight budgets that is still trying to be and succeeding at being an FBS football conference. I think people understand that when you're trying to uh, Subsidize FBS football that is always going to make life tougher for the smaller sports in a lot of cases. If you're unless you're making money hand over foot like they do in some of the major conferences, in smaller conferences it makes it a little bit of a tighter squeeze. So I think from the superficial way, in those superficial ways, I think a lot of people would look at it as not a surprise. And you know, when and if Chicago State ends up cutting their baseball program, I think it speaks to how dire the financial situation at Chicago State has been at times and maybe continues to be that. I think everyone knows that things are really dire financially there, but I think most people don't really have a good grasp. There are some schools I think that people would not know are cash-strapped that are cash-strapped, and I think there are some schools that are doing pretty good that I think people wouldn't know are doing pretty good. Sometimes it's not as simple as looking at, you know, surface-level stuff and being able to determine how well off a school or an athletic department is fiscally. But Chicago State, we knew, <laughs> and so that one, um, that that one is, is certainly not a surprise. Uh, Furman, though that one, when you, when you said it, I had not seen this, you know, you and I have been recording, you know, so we, we missed that breaking news as it came across in, in the moment, but I, um, that one set me back a little bit. That one's like, oof. that, that, that one hurts a little bit. Cause that's a consistently, you know, they haven't been in the postseason in a while, but that's a consistently competitive program. I mean, that's, that's a 500 program in a good league like the SOCON. And I think, it, you know, it's not an FBS football program. Um, it's, it, it, they do have football, they Southern Conference football is FCS, so I think that that's one that, that strikes me. It's a Southern school in a state in South Carolina that loves its college baseball. And I know that only kind of tangentially matters. And when it comes to stuff like this, um, but that, that, that's a program that, you know, I would have never guessed would be cutting baseball and, and it's a private school. So we, we don't know a lot of the ins and outs of what goes on there financially and, and otherwise. And that kind of adds a layer of opacity in terms, in terms of trying to figure this all out. But, that one, that one surprised me a little bit because that's that's the type of program that you could see everybody's going to have to cut cut things here. And I don't mean cut things into the sport. I mean, every sport is going to kind of have to be in charge of trying to cut budget here and there and everywhere. And I've, I've talked to coaches about that a lot in the last few weeks about the, their efforts to kind of do that. Going all the way back to when I talked to Justin Hill and he talked about how he's reissuing gear bags in 2021. They're not ordering new bags. There's something as small as that. So, I, I say all that to say that, that Furman is is a surprise for me that's that's a school that I do not expect to see um, this news breaking about and it really kind of shakes you that this can happen to just about anybody uh, not literally but there there is a wider birth of schools than most people myself included I'll throw myself in that boat there is probably a wider number of schools that this could happen to in a, in a matter of months than I even realize I don't know what that number is but it's probably more than I think and maybe Furman is on the, you know, is in the bottom 50% of the schools that this was uh, that that felt most safe. So maybe it shouldn't be as much of a surprise, but, but it is for me. And so this one is um, this one, this one's a tough one to swallow. And I'm sure there'll be others to come that that are, that are difficult. And um, we'll just have to, um, we'll just have to see. And that's kind of, that's not, uh, that's not um, consoling in any way. (laughs) We'll just have to see is almost a little bit ominous that we're just kind of feels like we're waiting on pins and needles for the next one for the next one to drop. And um, unfortunately for Furman that, that day was today.
0: The uh, the thing about Furman that's really surprising is that the SOCON overall has not made significant changes. They've been pretty steady with what they're doing. They are also going to conference series in two days, as I recall. They're at 14, their,
1: 14 conference tournament.
0: Yeah, four team conference tournament. But from talking to SoCon coaches to the extent that I have over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, and I've checked in with some of them. I don't think that anyone felt like that the SoCon was in this kind of trouble in terms of baseball. Um, Now coaches are literally among the last people to know anytime a program gets cut. Uh, I have yet to, in the in the 10 years I've been like dealing with programs getting cut, I have yet to encounter a coach that I can remember anyway that had more than like an hour's heads up that his program was getting cut. That's, that's not how you do things if you're an athletic director. And we can sit here and talk about whether that's like actually a good thing or not. But that's just not the way that they do things, that they – they keep people in the dark until they last possible seconds so that they can avoid, you know, backlash and freaked out parents and et cetera. Um, so, you know, you're, you're, con- it's not like I checked in on Furman, um, but even if you do, the coaches don't necessarily know. And, you know, so that it, it's, it's tough that, 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 a SOCON team, this would happen to. It's tough that it would happen to a MAC team. It's tough that it would happen to a WAC team, for that matter. Um, But yeah, these aren't going to be the last ones. Again, I don't think it's a coincidence that the NCAA has, um, you know, that that these cuts and that Akron sports cuts have all come since the NCAA released that or or came to an an agreement for um, a case-by-case waiver. Uh, and that it's also just the time when you know deposits at most universities were due at the start of this month for the fall semester, so schools are starting to get a better feel for how much money they will and won't have next year, how many students they will and won't have next year, and at all of the the schools like I guess we can't know this for sure with Furman because they're a private school, but certainly at Bowling Green. In uh, Chicago State, student fees are a big part of how they fund their athletic department. and if you have less students, uh, it's harder to collect as many student fees and then that leads to budget shortfalls and these things slide into the the next. so you know they, that that's what every every school, whatever athletic department or whatever baseball program is dealing with right now, and it's you know it's a really unfortunate situation and you know, it's not really through anyone's fault that that this is happening. It's just a tough situation for everyone to be in. Uh, you mentioned Joe that you know the the number could be bigger than anyone's realizing, and you know I don't know what the number is going to be ultimately. I will say that in the last between 2018 and 2022, I realize those next two years haven't happened yet, but. The Division One college baseball ranks were adding 10 teams. You know you look at Akron and Boise outright adding team outright adding the program, and then eight teams, eight schools were moving up to Division One. Um, that assumes St. Thomas is able to move from Division three to Division One, which has not been wholly approved by the NCAA yet, uh, but that is St. Thomas's intention. So, you are adding ten teams in that period, so even if ten teams get lost in this period, baseball will come out at a wash so i i don't I don't really want anyone to to buy into any sort of narrative that college baseball if it if it is limited to that few programs, the college baseball is in any sort of trouble particularly or under attack or whatever. Like there are teams that have been added to division one. And even if we, you lost 30 teams, which would be 10% of division one, you know, that's a net negative 20, which isn't good. That's, um, you know, what, like 600. No, that's right. That's a lot of roster spots lost. I guess that is 600 roster spots lost. Um, more than. Uh but overall college baseball will remain in a relatively good position. But if we start seeing more cuts than that, then I mean I, I guess I'll have to sing a different tune. But it's uh it's a concern anytime a program is cut, certainly. Um I wonder how many of these cuts will be truly permanent. No one has said they're cutting it just on a, a trial basis or a temporary basis yet maybe someone will do so maybe some of these schools will reevaluate in a few years if things do bounce back to normal um you know particularly maybe a school like Furman that uh you know is geographically advantaged i guess we we can say um it maybe they reevaluate a few years down the line i don't know but i it's uh it's a disconcerting time, but I, I, I guess I would just temper that with the fact that 10 Division One schools have added baseball or will add baseball over the last few years. And, you know, that seems like a significant thing to keep in mind in a time when opportunities are being eliminated for players uh, around the country.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and to be clear, I, I guess I meant it more as, because I agree with you, I, I, I don't think this is any sort of death knell for college baseball at writ large, but um, I, I guess I meant it more just in terms of the level of program that could potentially get eliminated is probably higher than I was than I was giving it. Credit oh, for absolutely. I mean, I mean,
0: Cal got, they tried to cut Cal
1: in 2011. Right, right. That's, I mean, that's a great reminder, you know, that they, they tried to pull that. It's also a great reminder of like sometimes it can be a wake up call for for things and 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 perhaps some of these programs come back i would probably actually bet on some of these programs coming back in a number of in a number of years so for, for a number of reasons I, there's a there's also a, i mean we this is a time where maybe we're up for a little bit of gallows humor and i think one thing that might be a strange twisted positive is you and i both had this conversation with our, our boss jj cooper who primarily covers you know he's actually knocking it out of the park in terms of covering um, you know coronavirus effects on the minor leagues and, and major league baseball and the agreements between those two and and all of that stuff. But he had a conversation that he relayed to you, you and I both, he had with a division one athletic director who more or less told him our shortfall is to the point where I can't cut enough sports to make that up. So what am I going to do? Like, I can't cut that many sports. And in some way, again, you know, I think in, in general we're all fans and understand the importance of fiscal responsibility But on the other hand, like what, what is he going to do? Cut eight sports, you know, and you like, so in so on some level, this is so, the situation is so unique and so dire and so bad, just to put it that way, that maybe in some way, that's what ends up saving some programs just because it is so far beyond being able to just cut a program here, a program there and make the numbers work that maybe we're at a point just kind of beyond that. And I think that's one of the lessons that maybe, some people are learning as time has gone on here. That's one of the things that the Bowling Green cut is, you know, it seems like when you, when you start to add it all up, when you, when you take a coach's salary, support staff salaries, you know, the, 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 the money, whether you want to count that as real dollars or not, the money towards scholarships, the travel costs, meals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It sounds like it's going to be a whole lot of money. You can save from cutting a baseball program, a Bowling Green expects to save about 500 grand this year. For cutting its baseball program. And again, that's just one year. I mean, obviously the savings kind of, kind of continue to roll over, but, um, when you think about the grand scheme of what it takes to run an athletic department, especially at the, at the FCS football or FBS football level, you're talking about so much more money than that. And that's not me bashing football. I love college football. I'm not here to bash college football or its place in the sporting landscape, what have you. But you just really start to understand that some of these, issues that that athletic departments are going to face based on the coronavirus pandemic are just going to run so deep that just cutting baseball or tennis or track, you know, track or whatever else, they're not going to cover it. And perhaps in, like I said, in some twisted, strange way, perhaps that's a silver lining for baseball question mark. I mean, that sounds weird to say, but that might be the reality of the situation.
0: Yeah. It's uh, you know, the, the, the Bowling Green thing was interesting that, you know, they, cut baseball which they say is going to save five hundred thousand dollars it's part of the overall athletic department reorganization and various cuts that are going to save two million dollars and you know far be it from me to figure out how you make all of this work like i don't have bowling greens books but you know i mean that's a quarter of what you're ultimately cutting and you know it's uh I don't I don't know whether that that speaks more to like did you actually need to cut baseball or like speaks to the depth of the cuts that are having to be made. If you're cutting something as significant as a sport and that's still only a quarter of the sh- of the of the budget cut overall that, that you're trying to make. Um, it's. Uh, you know, it, it's significant and, you know, that's. um I don't know. It's a it's a tricky tricky situation all the way around, and um, I don't envy any of the athletic directors that have to make these calls. I know they don't like doing this stuff, um, and you know it's uh, it, it's it's just unfortunate that you know it goes what goes with the cuts to the programs
1: uh, are the loss of opportunities for the players. Yeah, nobody becomes an athletic director because you want to tell thirty five kids they're going to have to either stay at school and not play baseball or go find somewhere else to play baseball. Just not a, not a fun thing to, uh, to have to do. One of the the things we haven't really touched on, we talked about the conference tournament alterations and, and there's a debate to be had. And, and perhaps it's, you know, once we actually get more towards looking ahead of 2021, it's, it's perhaps a conversation to be had about that the positives and negatives of some of these changes, whether it's taking a regular season champ as your automatic bid or just doing a 14 regional, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know i i know i have conflicted feelings about it I, you know so that's an interesting debate to be had but we we kind of i think most of those decisions we will know fairly soon because you can't just decide maybe you could but i it's unlikely that some conference will decide in february oh yeah that conference tournament we're going to have in 3 months is actually going to be half the teams we said it was going to be so those will come pretty soon what will have to play out over over the, the next several months is the idea and i know you've talked to coaches i have as well The idea that, you know, college baseball could look fairly different next year just in terms of, you know, there are coaches talking about maybe playing closer to 40 or 45 games. And some stuff is easy to cut. Like maybe you start, to your point, Teddy, you you suggested you know, maybe you just don't play opening weekend if you're a team that has to go across the country to warmer weather to get games early in the season. Maybe it means you don't play midweeks. And and let's be honest, midweek games are a mixed bag you know, it provides some great opportunities to play some rivalry games out of conference. But, you know, the average midweek game is not necessarily all that interesting. So maybe that's an easy place to cut midweek games. All of the, those are tended to, to be your cheaper games. So that maybe is kind of counterproductive. But um, that's the part that I think we're going to continue to kind of see play out in slow motion here is, you know, the schedules are are in a lot of cases, you know, Set And so you, you might see a situation where coaches are having to kind of go back and renegotiate things and pull things off the schedule and decide, um, decide which games they're going to keep and which ones they're going to have to get rid of uh, throughout the schedule and that that's to say nothing of some of these scheduling alliances like the ones we've seen proposed with some of these conferences in the in the northern states that, that maybe will continue for other conferences we'll have to see but that, the scheduling piece is the one that, that we've yet to really see shake out, but but will over the coming weeks and months.
0: Yeah, I think you're definitely going to see that one um, continue to take shape. The thing with baseball scheduling is it's not as like hard and fast as these football contracts, and it's not done as far in advance. Uh, but there are contracts that have already been drawn up. Um, and, you know, I, I know that there are, you know places that that are going to tell coaches that like you can't take trips if it's not going to be um you know if, if it's going to cost you can't take those trips in non-conference and you know that that's going to be a significant impact not only on mid-majors who are you know trying to go and and play um you know, around the country, not only on Northern schools, but also on, you know, your SEC schools that are trying to, you know, schedule home games of their own. And, you know, those, those schools, you know, I I would guess, I haven't specifically talked to any of these coaches about it, but I would guess that LSU, Arkansas, the Mississippi schools, um, South Carolina, A&M, Texas, you know, look at the top of the attendance charts. I would guess those schools are going to be told, don't leave home much if you can avoid it. Like, let's get our gate this year. Like, and, you know, we'll even maybe pay to make that happen. But, like, let's get our gate if if we can. And, you know, they're going to – if if schools only want to play 40 games, you know, at a mid-major level, like 45 games – it's going to be hard to make some of those trips. So I don't know. I'm interested to see what everyone's schedule looks like. Um, you know, I don't think that's front of mind right now. Certainly it's not front of mind for us. I shouldn't say it's not front of mind for coaches. I just feel like right now there's so much focused on like the draft and what, what the impacts and fallout is going to be from that. that We're going to see more talk about this uh, and and probably get into it more once we get more into July. But and also at that point people have a little bit better understanding of exactly what the spring might be able to look like than what they can now so i that's definitely a thing to watch uh going forward and it's something that's getting talked about now um we haven't gone into it yet because i'm busy trying to get my mind around other things i guess but it is a it's a significant situation and it's a really significant situation when you consider what RPI means to college baseball and what going on the road means for your RPI.
1: Yeah. You could, you could certainly see a lot of situations where, yeah, I mean, that's, that's interesting thing where it's, I mean, so much of scheduling there, there are coaches who, you know, some of my, some of my, actually some of my favorite coaches to talk to are coaches that are very into configuring a schedule because they, they, they want – and part of it is because they're very interested in asking me about, you know, what I think about what's going to happen to the RPI here and the RPI there and who's going to be good and, who you know, all that kind of stuff. And, but there are coaches who are very into that piece, and they, they, may be, they may have their hands tied in a lot of cases and won't be able to do that. I think it opens the door to more collaborative scheduling. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see more early season tournaments that are drivable for people. You know, you put four teams in a region together, and maybe that means you play in colder weather than you really would like to. But, you know, maybe a handful of teams get together and try to play, you know, two games a day on a on a on a neutral side or two games a day at someone's home field to kind of save some cost there.
0: I almost think it's gonna have to be that because you know the this is another thing that Joe and I have talked about that I kind of want to report a little bit more and maybe I shouldn't be talking about it on the podcast as a result, but neutral site tournaments are very good ideas right now because of that but you also have to realize somebody has to pay to rent the field in most of these cases and if the if you can't sell every single seat like if it's not possible to sell every seat in a minor league stadium can you get that field cheaply enough that it still makes sense to get it as a neutral site or at that point are you better off just going to someone's home? field even if that means you know the various rpi and just general home home field advantage situations that exist um you know in in those situations you know we we've we've seen the proliferation of these neutral site early season non-conference tournaments i wonder what their business model looks like going
1: forward in the immediate future yeah it seems it seems right for some change there and I wouldn't be surprised if it's more tournaments, less fanfare, you know what I mean? Like just more, more of them just for the convenience factor and the volume of games you can get from them factor. And then, but less circum, less um, pomp and circumstance around them because they're playing at campus sites or um, you know, some place that's a little bit easier to rent out than a minor league facility or, or what have you.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely something to watch. Um, Joe, I know we've been at this for a little while, but this being Conference Tournament Week, let's just acknowledge uh, what what is happening with the places that are ca- can- canceling. There it is. Conference tournaments. The MAC is the first to outright cancel. Don't think it's going to be the last. There haven't been you know, a bunch of conferences lining up to announce that they're doing what the MAC is doing, but you and I are both of a mind that mid-major conferences should just be sending their, from a pure competition standpoint, that they should just be sending the regular season champion anyway. Um, But that said, conference tournaments are really fun for the players. Like it's the most competitive environment that you can ask for. And, you know, I, a lot of people have said like some of their best memories are playing in conference tournaments. And so for those, for the tournaments to be lost for this reason in this way, like that just feels very unfortunate that it would be one thing if all the coaches came together and were like, you know what, let's just give it to the best team that proved themselves over 25, 30 games, however many of the conference plays on their own, as opposed to it being dictated to them in a cost savings measure.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely of, I'm very conflicted about that piece of it. I can acknowledge that regionals are better if a mid-major or low-major conference's best team is represented in in regionals. And there are history is littered with examples of when that wasn't the case and it was kind of disappointing, not least of which was Elon last year. You know, just a really good team in the Colonial that that didn't get it done in the conference tournament and that and that's all she wrote. So that happens all the time. That being said, I'm kind of like the players in that I like conference tournaments. I like bigger conference tournaments for a number of reasons. One of them is, is just as a fan of college baseball, which I still consider myself that even though I I cover it professionally, I just like seeing a lot of different teams in one place. I like that. I can sit down in the press box or wherever I'm sitting at at the, at the event and I can sit there all day and they will just keep running games out there in front of me all day. Now, I'm seeing a little different doom typically after four or five days of this. So that's kind of the funny thing is there are a few times where I'll be more energized and more excited about getting to do this as a job, which I day after day, I'm excited to do this as a job, but never more so than at the beginning of conference tournament week, because I'm usually so excited to get out to a conference tournament to see just a whole bunch of baseball with, with stakes, big time stakes. And that's S T A K E S. Although sometimes S T E A K S big time stakes. That being said, by the end of the week, they are a slog. And I know, like, I'm, you know, you know, boo-hoo. Like, I get to watch baseball for hours and hours a day. But that's not just me. That's the people who run the park. That's the people who, for the conference, who put it on. That's for the coaches and players who often are having to play the game of, like, when do we leave the hotel to go to the stadium because this game is running a little bit long. Um, This is the families of players, you know, the friends of players. Uh, you know, it's it's a tough week for a lot of people. So, I'm really of two minds. I'm sad that a conference like the SoCon is going to a smaller tournament, even though I think it's the type of tournament that's right for that because that they have a very defined top and bottom of that conference. Um, but at the at the, so at the, at, this, at at one time I'm sad about it, and at, at another time I realized from a competitive standpoint how this could actually be a positive for college baseball. And so I've I've kind of gone back and forth on this. I'm with you. I suspect the conferences that have done something about conference tournaments so far will not be the only ones. We'll just kind of have to see how that plays out as as time goes on. But uh, so I'm at least a little bit upset about it, while it can also being able to realize that it might be a positive in the long run.
0: I uh, I also think the thing with the 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 conference tournaments is. I really like the four team conference tournament like yes that means fewer kids are getting to experience that but you know the West Coast Conference has had a four team tournament for a while and I really like the compactness of it like it's a complete regional format and while I don't necessarily like the regional format if um, if you're going to go play in that the next week like I I like the symmetry of that um and I like I just like how intense that whole week weekend is at that point um so i do like the conferences that are going to four teams i would also encourage any conference that's like wondering what they should do like go look at the patriot league and the ivy league what they do you know, playing a, a three-game series there are definitely negatives of that um you know the patriot league takes four teams which means it takes place over two weekends which means you end two weekends early but if you're the conf- if you're the kind of conference that just really wants to cut games off right now like does it really matter that you're ending two weekends early? Um, you know, consider that. Uh, but I like the, the series aspect of it. Um, so if you're, if you're a conference that's wondering, I, I really like that format. Still gives you something, still gives you costs. Like it, it feels like a, a decent middle ground. Not, you know, you're not getting everything you get in a, uh, in a full tournament, but you are getting some sort of postseason out of it. And, you know, you are, it would limit some costs, I would imagine. So I, I would also endorse that. But it's, uh, it's unfortunate that this is the way it's going to be and that the MAC, you know, maybe it, the MAC is either going to be like way ahead of the curve in already enacting these measures for four years or they're going, you know, people are going to look at it in a couple of years and be like, why did they feel like they needed to cancel this four years in advance? Um, I don't know which it's going to be. Obviously, hopefully it's the latter, but you know, if they're right and they're not doing this for at least four years, like that's, that's kind of a really dire situation for college athletics as a whole, not just for baseball, but for college athletics as a whole.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, no doubt about that. Uh, The thing about it is, too, and I guess my my last little piece on this is that, you know, if things do improve, conference tournaments are a really easy thing to expand. It happens all the time. Big Ten used to be six. Now it's eight. SEC has expanded a couple of times. So, I mean, that's a really simple thing to to re-expand if it it is called for. So um, these more so than obviously – Programs can come back from the dead. We've seen that happen. It wouldn't be a surprise to see a team that gets cut this offseason come back at some point. But conference tournaments are just a matter of logistics. You know, they can snap their fingers and go from four to six or four to eight or, or what have you. So, um, you know, perhaps in healthier times, some of these will some of these will return. Because ultimately, yes, the conference has a vested interest in putting its best team in the regionals. But with, with the conference, especially in sports like baseball, in most conferences, let's be honest, are not driving revenue what's most important to the conference in those situations is giving the student athletes, um, you know, this experience and, you know, kind of giving the league content to stream or to tweet about or what have you and bigger conference tournaments do that. So to say nothing of whoever hosts it gets the hotel revenue and so on and so forth. So um, I think conference tournaments to some degree, I think some conferences will get rid of them forever Uh, perhaps. I think some will stay at a smaller number, and I think some will expand right back as soon as things are in a little bit healthier times.
0: I also find it just very interesting. In addition to the breaking news of Furman, we have breaking news in another sport where USC and Ole Miss have added a home-and-home football series for 2025 and 2026. I like, obviously, totally different levels of Division I athletics that we're operating at here, but just to see those be like the two things in my my timeline right now, that's a very interesting juxtaposition. Um, and, uh, you know, we've, I actually don't know how much Joe and I have talked about the stratification of division one uh, baseball or athletics in general on the podcast. We've certainly talked about it offline plenty, uh, but there's, there's going to be more of that coming. And um, there are a lot of people around the country that are going to say that's a good thing. I think Joe is going to be here to tell you that's a bad thing. Um, but it's it's a thing that 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 is going to be a real situation over the, the coming months and years, I would say. Okay, so enough with the depressing news. Uh, there's been plenty of that. As I said, it's been a busy week. Joe, why don't you tell the people what we're going to do on the podcast on Friday? Because as you may remember, listeners, we do this podcast twice a week this spring. Uh, the first week is the Newsy episode. That certainly was this one. Uh, the second episode is us rewatching a classic baseball game, or I guess in this case more, we're kind of focused on the team. Uh, wh- what is the, the one that we're doing this week, Joe?
1: We're going to be watching a game from the 2000 College World Series between uh, Louisiana Lafayette and San Jose State, two Cinderella darlings of the College World Series that year. Uh, we'll be talking um, – with Anthony Babineau, I assume that's been locked in, Teddy. I'm not just like uh, completely...
0: No, that is correct. that is correct.
1: Okay, so we'll be talking to Anthony Babineau of the UL coaching staff. Uh, to Teddy's point, we'll be talking more generally about that 2000 uh, UL team. Uh, it is a special team that is kind of remembered very fondly, not just by people in Lafayette and the Acadiana region, but also uh, just by college baseball fans, because they were one of the teams, in modern times anyway, that, that is kind of a reminder of... of what can be in terms of program building and tony Robichaux, the late tony Robichaux, did an outstanding job there um i also and this is not a bit this is not a joke i i know who wins that game i do not know the score i don't even know if it's a good game i put it on this list because the stories were good uh this was a san jose state team um that came out of nowhere uh to get to omaha it was it is an outlier in san jose state it's not even like sometimes you'll see Louisiana Lafayette was an example. They were building to this 2000 College World Series team and the 99 team was very, very good and just missed. And they continue to be a very good program. San Jose State, they've had years here and there, but this was really San Jose State's one year. Uh, They really popped up in a big way there. So uh, the storylines are just really good around this game. So the, the game might be just kind of slow moving and wretched and not well played. And I don't know, maybe it'll be awesome. But this game is more about the storylines and specifically, we're going to talk to Anthony Babineau about that special 2000 team and what that meant to the program. I'm sure we'll also talk a lot about coach Robichaux and um, his legacy, things of of that nature. So really looking forward to it.
0: Shouts to Joe for working in the Acadia region, Uh, just showing off some, some real Louisiana knowledge there.
1: Yeah. The Acadiana region, shout to the Acadiana advocate. it's a, I think it's actually how I knew about that they have the advocate network down there and they they name them based on the regions and when when uh Luke Johnson who does a great job covering LSU now was covering ULL he he wrote for the Acadiana Advocate so that's uh that's how I came to know about that that particular region of Louisiana
0: Well as uh depressing as this podcast may have been at least we got you guys uh a Jay Johnson interview which was full of optimism for the Wildcats in in the the 2021 season and a Luke Johnson reference, which makes it a good podcast by my standards. That, that's how I'm feeling
1: anyway. Nope. Yep, agreed.
0: All right. So with that, um, we will be back here on Friday to, like we, like Joe just told you, uh, talk about the, uh, the 2,000 Cajuns that, that make it to Omaha. Um, I think that is actually literally 2,000 Cajuns that made it to Omaha. We'll, we'll, we'll investigate and report back on Friday. So to hear that, remember to subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're getting your podcasts. Uh, if you can rate and review while you're there, we greatly appreciate that as well. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B.A. Uh, All of the news that we're talking about, you can find that over on the website, baseballamerica.com, which also is teeming with draft information, if you're into that this time of year as well. So thank you again to Arizona coach Jay Johnson for joining us today. Thanks to Joe. I've been Teddy Cahill. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you on Friday.